Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. Hello, and welcome to Tim Talks Politics, and it is good to be back after a, my goodness, what was it, eight-month hiatus? Kind of crazy. I am back at it. I am so sorry for my absence. It was a long one, much longer than I anticipated, in fact, but that's what happens when life happens. With finishing a dissertation, yes, I'm graduated and done with my doctoral degree, uh, but in addition to a dissertation, also uh, on the downside, busting a knee and having to get knee surgery... Uh, it just creates a lot of delays along the way when you're a one uh, one man show. So all that to say, I'm back. Happy to be back. It, going forward on the podcast, uh, we're going to be getting back to some of the typical things I've done uh, before: biweekly analysis and interviews of major newsworthy events around the world. Uh, going into the fall, uh, I'm teaching a class and in national security and military affairs. And so I think a lot of the topics will be uh, looking at that, which will be important because as we've seen in this last year, but which I'm sure my listeners have not uh, failed to take notice of, we have wars and rumors of war across the world. And so military uh, posture of the United States, military readiness of the United States, our national security posture is a key thing. But we have summer right now. And so summer is going to be about getting back to what we do here on the Tim Talks Politics podcast, working on uh, educating you and providing you with some in-depth analysis and thought-provoking conversations on uh, news of the moment and important uh, topics. It'll be a bit of a scattershot in terms of topics and what gets discussed, and there might not be a consistent through line. But that's just because there's been a lot. And obviously, I've been away for a while. And so uh, I want to test some new things for the podcast going forward. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, If you do want to stay up to date on what I'm doing on a more weekly basis, strongly suggest you become a subscriber to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief over at Substack. You can find it at timtalkspolitics.substack.com or at timtalkspolitics.locals.com, which is more of a social media-ish platform, uh, less of an email news letter. But those are the two places where I'm going to be trying to put more of the day-to-day and week-to-week stuff so I can do more of the deeper dives here. Okay, so that's housekeeping announcements, where I've been, what I've been doing. What are we going to discuss today? Well, I'm sure you probably already saw the title, so you know where this is going on today's episode. But there are so many topics to choose from. When you've been away for eight months and for most of 2022, what's turned into a momentous year in the United States and around the world, got war in Ukraine, we have gun control, we have the coming midterms, we have inflation in the economy. But I'm going to focus on this episode, perhaps one of the most monumental moments in modern American history. And that's the Supreme Court overturning its 1973 uh, Roe versus Wade decision on a 6-3 vote in the case of Dobbs versus Jackson last week. I'm recording this on June 29th, and the court overturned the case almost a week ago. The 49-year Roe precedent uh, essentially legalized abortion on demand across the United States, and the Dobbs decision is not making abortion illegal across the United States, but it's returning decisions on abortion policy uh, to the states. So it's kind of a, you might say, 
win for federalism. Uh, effectively, uh, Dobbs is basically this uh, decision to favor uh, federalism, the division of power between state and federal levels of government. It's not necessarily a statement on the morality of abortion, but it is a statement on whether or not ab an abortion is a woman's uh, civil right requiring uh, federal protection. And the ruling in the matter is a pretty emphatic no, especially if you read the uh, read the case. Now, the court's decision was kind of preempted by a leak of the what became the majority opinion uh, at the beginning of May. So we actually had about six weeks as a country, six or seven weeks as a country to uh, debate this decision, its implications, and where, where we go from here. So we're going to be unpacking some of that. It was a long, convoluted uh, month of uh, hot takes and think pieces about the court and its authority and and uh, the abortion issue at large and all that good stuff, which is a great discussion. Actually, I'll mention my newsletter again over at Substack. I did a couple of newsletters on that subject. So if you want to get into those uh, nitty gritty pieces, I'd suggest you check those out. But in this episode, I'm going to evaluate uh, several questions related to the Dobbs ruling and abortion more broadly. Because in the last week, actually more broadly in the last couple of months since the leak of the uh, majority opinion, there's been a lot of misinformation, misinterpretation on this ruling uh, out in the media ecosystem, uh, whether it's on social media platforms, whether it's on some of the hot takes and think pieces and more established journalistic out, um, outlets. I just think a little Q&A clarification may be in order. So that's what we're going to do today. And it'll be a good warm up for the rest of the uh, summer going forward. So before I dive into the specifics, uh, I want to be fully transparent on where I'm coming from on the abortion issue. Uh, I'm a Christian who believes that human beings are created in the image of an, an amazing God, which imbues every human life with dignity and rights uh, from the moment of conception. Uh, I'm a registered Republican, in part because of the GOP's consistent friendliness to the pro-life position. Though not always supportive of the pro-life policy objectives, uh, the GOP has at least consistently been supportive of the pro-life position and affirming uh, the right uh, to life. I truly believe that a society, how a society treats its youngest and most vulnerable members uh, is going to be indicative of that society's moral health. And America's celebration, not just support of abortion, is really as dark a stain on our national soul uh, as the sin of slavery and the uh, abuse of Native Americans throughout uh, American history. Some of the gravest uh, moral failings in American history have been truly horrific. And I think the expansion and more recently celebration of abortion in many states, uh, among them New York, California, Virginia at one point, uh, really is right up there. And so I celebrated the Supreme Court's uh, decision in Dobbs versus Jackson. I am happy with this decision. Now, I recognize that not everyone is. I recognize that many of my audience might not be. So um, I just want to say I'm glad you're here to uh, listen to me. I, what I'm going to argue or discuss here is not necessarily an attempt to uh, belittle the pro-choice position or to, or even to really make a case for a pro-life position. I mean, I think the arguments are all out there one way or the other. You can easily find them uh, anywhere you look. You just need to Google what is the basic pro-life position, what is the basic pro-choice position. You can find dozens of good articles arguing this out. But uh, that being said, 
you know, I recognize that this ruling and the uh, abortion restriction laws that are going into effect in numerous states, uh, I, I recognize that those are going to create burdens uh, for individuals and families. Uh, you know, I'm a parent. I understand that having kids is a major life alteration. Uh, so my prayer is that families and friends, churches and employers who do have women with unplanned, unplanned or crisis pregnancies in their midst uh, will extend grace, love and material support that those women are going to be needing uh, in the months ahead. It's only the right thing to do. And I think it would be in the best keeping of the spirit of the ruling of Dobbs versus Jackson. Uh, you know, in the best of circumstances, uh, pregnancy and childbirth and raising a child, it's just hard work. Just straight up, there's no, there's no, nothing easy about it, uh, and in many ways, it's some of the best work a person can do. But it's, it's still a roller coaster. So overturning a bad precedent doesn't change or eliminate our society's moral responsibility at the individual and the institutional level uh, to assist in the flourishing of these new mothers and their children. A couple other points, just as caveats, I want to make here is that uh, pro-choice opponents of this ruling are going to be watching. Uh, for the pro-life movement to fail at this point of care for expectant mothers. And I'll explain a little bit more of this below. And, and that really can't happen. So to those of you listening who are pro-life and who have celebrated this decision with me, I know that you're very aware of the work that the pro-life movement does in crisis pregnancy centers, adoption, foster care. Uh, I want to strongly encourage you to continue to not just uh, support those ministries and the, that work that's being done, but to really amplify the uh, publicity of those uh, those outlets and those organizations and those ministries, because theirs is a voice rarely heard in this debate, in a abortion debate that predominantly gets dominated by the voice of organizations like Planned Parenthood. The network of uh, crisis pregnancy centers across the country rarely does, and a lot of times people who believe that women in crisis pregnancies are left without recourse uh, are just misinformed or just completely ignorant of the work these excellent organizations are doing. So keep up the good work out there and uh, keep supporting those organizations and keep um, sharing their resources uh, with those in your network who you know. And we should also acknowledge that shifting from a women's health infrastructure uh, that supports and aids in the destruction of human lives to one that focuses on the health and flourishing of a human life, that's a heavy lift. So states that are considering themselves pro-life and passing laws on restricting access to abortion, they also have to be ready to pick up that burden at the policy level, that burden of care uh, and concern for women and their children in situations of uh, crisis pregnancies or unwanted pregnancies. Okay, those are all just kind of like laying out my, on the one hand, my biases, but also kind of like where, where I think, where my personal opinion is as thinking about this decision going forward. That's all preamble. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to run through uh, five questions that just kind of came to mind as I was thinking about the conversation that I was seeing unfolding on different media outlets and platforms over the course of the week. I've structured these uh, as, as a series of questions that I'll ask and answer based on the misinformation, misunderstanding, mischaracterization of this issue that I've seen or heard over the last several days. Where I can, I will include uh, links to relevant articles in the show notes. Uh, so you can go to timtalkspolitics.com to get those. Uh, but I'm gonna try to not cite too many articles just because I wanna kinda like keep it flowing and more conversational. But where I can, I will. And if you don't hear me cite something, in the podcast, I'll cite them in the show notes and you can find them there. 
Okay, so I already hinted at this early on, but I'm going to uh, just address this up front now because it's the easiest question. And this is a question a lot of people are asking and seem to be animating a lot of the anger in the pro-choice slash pro-abortion crowd immediately following the ruling. And that's the idea that abortion is now illegal. In some states, functionally, it is. Nationally, it is not. It's really important to emphasize this with people. The whole point of the Dobbs ruling was to basically say the degree to which you make access to abortion or abortion on demand easy, free, widespread, etc. The degree to which you want to do that in any individual state is going to be a decision made by the states, by state legislatures and governors. It's not something to be uh, it's not something to be decided by the Supreme Court. The basic argument, and I'll quote from the Dobbs decision at the end of the episode, but the basic argument is that Roe v. Wade essentially did that. Roe v. Wade and subsequent rulings that took their basis from Roe v. Wade essentially argued that that was not something for the states to do. Dobbs is reversing that. So abortion is not illegal nationally in the United States. It will be more difficult to access in some states, but in the most heavily populated states, or most of the most heavily populated states, so we're thinking like California, New York, not only is abortion still legal, it's widely accessible, and in, and govern, governors and legislatures in those states are already discussing ways they can make it even more widely accessible. So it is a incorrect statement to say that abortion is illegal uh, anywhere in the United States. And certainly, I mean, there was a uh, there was a abortion restriction law that went into effect in Louisiana that like just a few days after the Dobbs ruling uh, got stay put on it by a circuit court uh, judge. And so some of these laws that were aiming to restrict access to abortion in you know more conservative red states are still undergoing judicial uh, review. They're still undergoing battles in the court. And that's, you know, it's going to continue. I mean, Dobbs just sets a new precedent. It doesn't necessarily hit the brakes on everything that's happening in the realm of abortion policy around the United States. It's going to change those conversations and change those policy debates, but it's not uh, necessarily ending them by a long shot. Okay, another question that uh, I was thinking, and I saw a lot of people display, whether it was in the shape of protest signs or uh, airing grievances on social media, is uh, what recourse do women seeking abortions in restrictive states have now? Will they have to travel out of state? Uh, Will they be able uh, to get an abortion if they need one? And here it's really, really important Uh, to understand just kind of where, you know, what we're talking about with abortion. Because you'll find things like in the abortion discussion, the abortion debate, there's often this discussion of like, well, I'm in favor of abortion, you know, in the most extreme sense, all the way up to full-term pregnancy. I'm only in favor of abortion the first trimester. And then some people might say, I'm only in favor of abortion in the cases of rape and incense, or I'm only in favor of abortion in case of the life of a mother is threatened. Well, in many states, some that have even restricted access to abortion, the whole risk to a mother thing is still considered a viable reason to abort a pregnancy when there is a imminent threat to the life of a mother. 
Okay, so we should probably set that aside. So for women with truly life-threatening medical conditions where ending a pregnancy might be, you know, a terrible choice that is placed before them, a lot of the abortion laws or abortion restrictions that are currently being discussed in in conservative states don't really address that. They're more focused on this idea of abortion on demand. It's just because uh, a woman doesn't want to have a child for whatever reason, like socioeconomic reasons, or just because, or maybe just broke up with the the would-be child's father uh, because they weren't in a married relationship, whatever, uh, for whatever reason. And the thing is, it's hard to know just what reasons go into women wanting an abortion. One of the few states that actually gathers data on this is Florida. And I think the the statistics I saw this week was something like 75% of women who seek an abortion in Florida are saying, are, are giving no reason like health or or you know some life-threatening condition 75 percent of the reasons people uh, women seek an abortion in florida is just it's it's purely elective so when we're answering this question what recourse do women seeking abortions in restrictive states have uh, it really comes down to well it depends on their reason for seeking an abortion if it's just an elective abortion they're going to see their recourse for abortion limited severely and this is the pro-life argument is like, that's a good thing. Yes, it makes, it will make life challenging. It will make life difficult. Uh, no one who has gone through pregnancy or who's had a kid or is raising a kid is going to beat around the bush on that one. But for individuals, I think, who have honestly tried to do the best they can as parents and raise their children, they'll say, yes, it's hard. Yes, your recourse will mostly be to either, you know, have the child and raise the child or, you know, give it up for adoption. But right along with that should come the acknowledgement of if you elect to parent and raise your child, it will be hard, but you'll be in for one of the most enriching experiences of your life, one of the most meaningful experiences of your life. Uh, when my one of my friends, when the first person in my uh, group of college buddies uh, became a dad, I asked him uh, what it was like being a dad because you know most of the rest of us were either just getting married or still unmarried, so you know no one had kids. And he his words to me were, "It's the hardest thing I've ever done, but I wouldn't trade it." And I think to this day, now that I have my own kids, that is the best statement about being a parent I've come across. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Now, just because it's the hardest thing you'll ever do doesn't mean it will, won't be worth your time. Doesn't mean it won't be um, it won't be rewarding. It will does mean it will require you to make sacrifices. It will require you to choose the well-being of of your children over, say, a good night's sleep or something like that, or to give up one career track for another in order to provide uh, for your family. But that's what humans have been doing. For centuries, that's how we have flourished as a society, as a species. So this question, what recourse do women seeking abortions in restrictive states have? They do have recourse. They're not without options. The option that will be severely limited is the option to just electively end their pregnancy. 
And that's where we get into the questions about the morality of abortion, whether or not it's a human life. Now, for most in the pro-life movement, like myself, human life begins at conception. And so at that point, to destroy it is an immoral act, especially to destroy it in an elective sense, to choose to destroy it. Right. So that's where probably the fundamental divide is between the pro-life movement and the pro-choice movement. That's not to say that the pro-life movement is deaf to the concerns of women in difficult circumstances. That's why there is a wide network across the nation of crisis pregnancy centers who uh, work with uh, women who are in crisis pregnancies or unwanted pregnancies to uh, help move them away from choosing abortion and towards either uh, giving their child up for adoption or towards uh, raising the child themselves and supporting them in that process. Because uh, a lot of these women who come into these centers or elect to have abortions can often be going in just from fear, just not knowing what they're going to do. Life just got through a big curveball at them. The pro-life movement is very sensitive to that is very aware of that and very aware of those problems. And so the recourse women have to seeking abortions is to seek how to move through pregnancy well. Seek how to, if you so choose, become a mother and do it well. Seek, uh, if you choose to give your child up for adoption, seek how to ensure the well-being of your child after you give birth. These are, these are good recourses. They should be seen as good. Does it make pregnancy a challenge? Yes. But the goodness of what is being done should not be um, should not be de-emphasized. It needs to be noted. All right. Next question. Why would the Supreme Court reverse a precedent a majority of Americans support? I love this question as a uh, as a political science guy, as a policy wonk, as someone who looks at institutions and their relationships as a big believer in American federalism. Uh, I think this is a great question. One, because it's a little disingenuous. Two, because it speaks to an opportunity to uh, inform people about what the Supreme Court does. Uh, I've done a podcast uh, a couple summers ago, did a read through of the U.S. Constitution, and we talked about the role of the Supreme Court and what it does and what its job is. So if you want to listen in on that, you I would I'll link to it in the show notes. But I want to remind everyone that the Supreme, that America is a democracy, but the Supreme Court's job is not to basically be democratic. It's actually the least democratic of the branches, and it's designed to be that way. It's designed to ensure that the rules of the democratic structure we have put in place in the United States are followed and maintained. So they're calling balls and strikes. So let's think about America's national pastime, the base, the baseball game. Uh, you have two teams, two teams trying to win the game, right, uh, on the field. But the person calling balls and strikes is the umpire. The person whose word is law on how that game unfolds, on how the rules of the game are, are applied and interpreted to ensure as, as fair a game as possible are the umpires. Now, obviously, that can break down. Obviously, no system's perfect. But that's how it's structured. And that's how the Supreme Court fits into the American political system, uh, especially, and this is why I like the baseball analogy, we have a two-party system, Democrats versus uh, Republicans, Reds versus Blues. We've got two teams in the baseball diamond. They are trying to win, trying to win elections, trying to uh, score political points, trying to uh, win policy battles. The Supreme Court's job is not to tilt the field in favor of either team. The Supreme Court's job is to ensure that those teams 
or in the other two institutions, the legislative and the executive branches of government, are playing the game as fairly as possible. All right. Now, the analogy obviously is going to break down after a while, so I'll, I'll just leave it there. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court is the umpire in America's constitutional system. They're not there to take the pulse of public opinion and make a decision accordingly. They're there to say, what does the Constitution say? What does America's federal law say? What does precedent say? How has it historically been understood? And is this law under consideration abiding by those guidelines or not? That's the basic job of the Supreme Court. So in that respect, the Supreme Court probably shouldn't take the pulse of American popular opinion. And I would actually even push back on this idea that a majority of Americans support uh, Roe v. Wade to begin with. Uh, A lot of it, if you dig into the uh, data on American support or lack of support for abortion access or abortion rights, they largely see Roe v. Wade as kind of just this, almost like not even a case in itself. It's almost like a, a metaphor for abortion rights, right? And so to say that a majority... Uh, support Roe v. Wade is, is kind of an odd statement. The better question is to say, hey, do you do you support abortion in every instance? Do you support abortion throughout the whole um, term of pregnancy? Do you support abortion just in the first trimester? That's where you start to see a lot more variety in American popular opinion, and and it's just it, it's that kind of variety, that kind of variance. And also that that kind of level of argumentation on just when does a human life begin and, and when should it be afforded human rights? It's that kind of stuff that Roe v. Wade did not really engage. And the uh, Dobbs decision points that out and just says, this is what makes it a bad precedent. It makes it a bad precedent for a number of reasons. It makes it a bad precedent because it violates America's constitutional system of federalism and denies states the ability to discuss this issue and these issue as whether should be a right or not. But aside from violating the federal uh, system or the federal structure of American government, it also is just a terrible uh, assessment of defining and establishing criteria for assessing when uh, a human life is a human life and when it would not be, well, murderous to uh, destroy it uh, electively. It just doesn't do a good job there. And beyond that, even if it was doing a good job The Roe decision uh, is a 49-year-old decision, meaning our understanding of what happens uh, in the uterus uh, with the development of of a human fetus uh, is way advanced. Science knows way more now than they did at the time of the Roe ruling, and and this has posed a lot of challenges to just the abortion position in general. So the the Dobbs ruling kind of notes all these things and and just kind of says it's just on the whole, uh, Roe is a bad precedent. And I should point out here, uh, and I'll highlight this in my quotes I read later, uh, that pro-choice, like so abortion-supporting ethicists and philosophers have also pointed this out with Roe, that it is bad precedent. It is a weakly argued position for uh, abortion rights. So just because a majority of Americans support it, doesn't really say anything about what the Supreme Court should or should not do. What it says or what it might suggest is more what Americans do or do not know about that precedent and abortion in general and the options uh, that it creates uh, and the alternatives there are, etc. So 
Basic answer to this question, why would the Supreme Court reverse a precedent majority, a majority of Americans support? Because it's their job. A majority of Americans supported slavery. They, a, a large chunk of Americans, not a majority, supported segregation. And the Supreme Court still overturned precedents that entrenched slavery, the Dred Scott decision. They, uh, they overturned Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board of Education. The Supreme Court overturns precedents frequently, and it overturns precedents at times when those precedents are actually uh, supported by, if not a majority of Americans, by certainly significant numbers uh, in America. So uh, we need to be mindful of this, that the Supreme Court has a job to do that is outside public opinion, and we need to be okay with that. Just because America is a democracy doesn't mean every institution of American politics needs to function in a democratic way, uh, and there's no democracy in the world that functions that way to begin with. And so to even suggest as such or imply as such is a very disingenuous argument. All right, next question to consider. So what does this mean for uh, for other major precedents? So in addition to getting worked up and angry over the Roe decision, uh, abortion rights activists were very upset about comments from Justice Clarence Thomas suggesting that the Supreme Court needs to reevaluate uh, reevaluate precedents on gay marriage, contraceptives, others, uh, and other uh, issues that are uh, that are supportive by so that are supported by the uh, abortion group, the pro-abortion group, mostly because the pro-abortion group is on the political left, and these issues are you know relevant and um, and salient to the political left. So there was this general belief that uh, that the Supreme Court is going to come gunning for uh, other precedents and looking to overturn uh, precedents. And okay, maybe there's one judge if it's you know, Judge Thomas, Justice Thomas, maybe there's one judge who wants to do that. But here's the thing. The Supreme Court of the United States cannot just go out there and overturn precedent because they're feeling like it after their first cup of coffee in the morning. They must choose to review a case that is coming up through due process for their review that the precedent in question is being cited for uh, in prior court battles more or less. It's a little bit of an oversimplification of the process. There's, of course, some case instances where the Supreme Court is the court of original jurisdiction, but for the vast majority of cases, especially on some of these more culture social issues, they're going to be coming to the Supreme Court after having gone through uh, circuit and appellate court rulings, and they're usually going to be dealing with Uh, local and state level laws. So they have to actually wait for those to work their way through. And at which time, like the makeup of the Supreme Court could look different, at which time the cases coming through that address those precedents might not even be good cases to begin with. And the court might just decide to not hear them. They've done that before. Uh, In fact, this was something that was uh, that pro-life and conservative court watchers were getting concerned about was that in the early going of their tenures as justices, President Trump appointees Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett were making decisions that a lot of conservatives were unhappy with. They were like refusing to hear cases or they were uh, they were voting in different directions that conservatives were unhappy with. And a lot of them were getting concerned that Roe might never get overturned because these two apparently conservative ju- justices were not making what these conservatives believed to be just conservative decisions. Okay, so just because a justice says we should reconsider some of these precedents does not mean they're going to be overturned tomorrow, 
does not mean there's even cases or laws in the pipeline to uh, put those precedents in position to be overturned. So what does this really mean for other major precedents? Very little. Now, I, to a certain extent, I can understand where someone who might be more progressive or on the political left might be concerned, right? It's been a hard, if you're a progressive, it's been a hard couple of weeks in the Supreme Court. Uh, there have been rulings uh, in favor of gun rights. There has been rulings, obviously, overturning Roe v. Wade. There's been rulings that have overturned laws on uh, forbidding the use of state education funds to support parents sending their kids to faith-based schools. There's been uh, other religious liberty uh, rulings. So, yeah, if you're a progressive, it's not been a good week in the court, straight up. And so if you're concerned about precedence, I can see how that's a valid concern. But that's where you have to kind of take a step back and say, okay, now I might have a valid press, I'm concerned about these precedents, but what's the probability of them being overturned? And my point on this question is that it's actually a very low probability. And we should probably, you know, pump the brakes on that uh, because unfortunately this argument that, oh my goodness, we're going to be overturning all these precedents and we're going to be taking, like America is going to regress into some kind of super repressive society or something is uh, is actually being used more for its fear stoking and more as for uh, feeding that what I've often called the rhetoric of uncertainty that fires activists up, that fires people up, plagues, plays on their fears and anxieties. Uh, and it's just not healthy for our political body and, and for people who um, continue to traffic in that rhetoric and traffic in that very ignorant view and understanding of the Supreme Court and its work. I, I think they're doing a disservice. They're doing a disservice to the constituencies they serve. They're doing a dis disservice to the broader American public. And, and well, you just need to knock it off. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you have the right to free speech, and I'm totally okay with that. Just know that there's consequences to what you're saying. Sooner or later, people are just going to stop listening to you because you're crying wolf all the time. So let's uh, let's pump the brakes Let's ha on that. Let's recognize that there are some major precedents that uh, might be deserving of being overturned, like Roe v. Wade, but there's also other precedents that uh, that are here to stay, that are, or at least here to stay for the foreseeable future, and we need to recognize that. And we also should recognize that when a precedent gets overturned, that doesn't necessarily mean that the court is reversing American society's views on an issue. They're merely saying there was an irresponsible use of federal power in this case. That's what they're saying. And so we need to kind of like, you know, keep it in context and um, and keep the proper boundaries around that. So where do we go from here? That's kind of the final question I want to kind of wrap today's episode on. Where do we go from here? What do we what do we expect? Well, you know, sadly, I expect it to be an still more divisive discussion and debate on abortion. Uh, as the abortion fight now moves to the states, where it should be, where it should have always been, uh, I fully expect those um, policy debates, those protests and counter-protests to uh, become more intense before they become less intense. In California, there's already talk about adding a constitutional amendment to the uh, Amer to the California Constitution, uh, affirming uh, a right to abortion. Uh, I think that's probably a little extreme, even for deeply blue California, because there are large segments of the population that just 
that might support abortion rights in California, but not exactly are aren't exactly extreme in their support of abortion rights. And the more extreme you get, that sooner or later undercuts your uh, your political base. And so I'm not saying that it's going to get passed or not get passed. I'm just saying that um, that's going to become a major political fight, even in California. So. There's going to be major policy fights in a lot of different states. Uh, there's still court battles going on. Uh, at the federal level, uh, there's been moves in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. Democratic uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has called for a vote to codify Roe v. Wade, so to uh, for Congress to pass a law, which is a, which is a constitutionally allowed thing for Congress to do when, uh, when the Supreme Court overturns something. They can then pass a law and make codify something in federal law that um, that the Supreme Court can then maybe overturn it again if the case comes up or if uh, they determine that the law itself violates the Constitution. But if the law doesn't violate the Constitution, then that doesn't have to that might not happen. All I'm saying is the constitutional gears are grinding on what to do after this. And one of the responses that the Democrats have had is, okay, well, let's see what we can do in Congress to pass a law codifying the basic uh, position of Roe v. Wade. That's definitely one option. Now, it's probably not going to get very far, but that's uh, but that's definitely an option. Uh, for their part, the executive branch can also uh, do things. So the I'm not sure, I forget if it's the FDA or Health and Human Services, but uh, one of those entity, entities already started looking at like, okay, do we uh, make abortion pills a um, an over-the-counter drug now, as opposed to something that is, uh, that is more restricted in its access? Uh, there have been, there were some who suggested that in Congress, I'm not going to name names because I don't want to, who they were was not necessarily the point, it was kind of the idea. And the idea was ridiculous, and I'd rather not make someone a laughing stock. But this idea, there was an idea that maybe the president should write an executive order that uh, that federal land be used to uh, give uh, provide for abortions. Like the idea being that, like maybe I don't know, like you use federal land in like national parks or on national historical sites to set up mobile units for abortions or something like that, which kind of is just crazy on a number of levels. And and I'm not, it's not because I'm pro-life that I say this is crazy. The Biden White House immediately shot the idea down as nuts, partly because if, you're, if your position is pro-choice and, you know, protect the health of women, you're essentially arguing for setting up a back alley option right uh or at least it starts to look and sound like that so just it's just not it's not a good uh move it's not a good move politically it's of dubious legal grounds and it just is it's a bad look and it's probably not going to be good for the women you help you hope to serve anyway so it's just it's just a terrible idea all all up and down so um, i'm glad that the biden white house shot that down as quickly as they did um it was it was a good move while i disagree with the biden white house on their positions on abortion that they've kind of kept a cooler head than many of their political allies and supporters in kind of like shooting down these crazier responses uh, to the ruling. It, it's been it's been good that they've done that. They've addressed themselves. This will be rare for me, but I'll give uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, props here as well. Uh, Pelosi and Biden, as the respective leaders of their party in the executive and legislative branches of American government, have taken the loss hard as they would as they as they'd be expected to but they've chosen to say okay well what can we constitutionally do now within the boundaries of the constitution what can our offices and branches do to uh, advance a more pro-row position and that's what you do that's what you do in our constitutional system and i think that's a 
that is uh, a good model of responding to a loss in the courts. I would say that uh, that's definitely what uh, the pro-life movement has done for the last 49 years, actually. They took a huge loss in the courts, and they took many losses in the courts, and they continued to work through the constitutional system at every level of government, local, state, and national, uh, to push the position. That is what you do. Okay, so obviously there's a lot uh, still up in the air. There's a lot uh, of different directions we can go. What I certainly don't want to see is I don't want to see this very divisive ruling uh, drive a deeper wedge uh, between neighbors, between communities, between friends and family uh, in the United States. We're already a country that, while not as deeply divided as many seem to think, we're still a country that is reeling from COVID, wrestling with a difficult economic uh, environment. There's a lot of things that can unite us and pull us together. This is something that has the potential to be divisive. But what I really don't want to see is I don't want to see it turn to something uh, violent. Unfortunately, from May to now, there have been over 120 fire bombings and other attacks or threats of attacks against crisis pregnancy centers and supporters of crisis pregnancy centers. You have not seen this or heard this on most mainstream media uh, sources, but the FBI just started uh, investigating these um, just a couple weeks ago. So it is a matter of record. There are these crimes and these acts of domestic terrorism being carried out against um, pro-life entities, and it's not good. That is another direction where this could go, and I certainly hope it doesn't go that direction. There's a lot of different ways our constitutional system allows groups to make their positions known, to argue for their positions, and thank God we have a largely independent uh, judiciary that seeks to uh, keep that playing field of, in our, of our constitutional system as fair and open as possible. So I'm hopeful that where we go from here is still within the guardrails of our constitutional system that our founders set up, that our courts uh, seek to uh, enforce. So here's my question for you. I've just been asking and answering questions. Now that states are going to be the primary agents uh, responsible for the abortion issue, uh, well, what kind of policies ought they be pursuing to facilitate the flourishing of new mothers and their unborn children? And should those state governments even be the primary agents that facilitate the flourishing of mothers and their unborn children? Food for thought. That's where the debate's going. And so it's helpful to start thinking about, okay, yeah, what should that look like? Uh, I think everybody, progressive and conservative alike, need to think about that and think about it long and hard. In closing... Today, I have two rather long quotes from the Dobbs opinion. You can find this on page five of the majority opinion. I'll link to it in the show notes. Like the infamous decision in Plessy versus Ferguson, Roe was also egregiously wrong and on a collision course with the Constitution from the day it was decided. Casey perpetuated its errors, calling both sides of the national controversy to resolve their debate. But in doing so, Casey another Supreme Court ruling on abortion, necessarily declared a winning side. Those on the losing side, those who sought to advance the state's interest in fetal life, could no longer seek to persuade their elected representatives to adopt policies consistent with their views. The court short-circuited the democratic process by closing it to the large number of Americans who disagree with Roe. An even more glaring deficiency was Roe's failure to justify the critical distinction it drew between pre- and post-viability abortions. 
the arbitrary viability line, which Casey termed Rowe's central rule, has not found much support among philosophers and ethicists who have attempted to justify a right to abortion. The most obvious problem with any such argument is that viability has changed over time and is heavily dependent on factors such as medical advances and the availability of quality medical care that have nothing to do with the characteristics of a fetus. That's all for now. This is Tim Talks Politics. I'll be looking forward to seeing you back here, hopefully in a couple of weeks when we have another fascinating, interesting topic to talk about. Have a good one. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malash. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics podcast.